Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Barack Obama spearheaded the setting up of a dangerous bioweapons lab in Ukraine. Here's another one. Putin seemingly plans to rebuild most of eastern Ukraine. Here's another one. The facts are there. Power in Ukraine is indeed occupied by a gang of drug addicts. This stuff is all over the internet. Disinformation about the war in Ukraine has been running rampant since the Russian invasion began and even before. Social media was flooded with false information about Russia, Ukraine, Obama, bioweapons. The list goes on and on. And we can and should blame the bad actors for this, of course. There's copious research studies uh, tracing back large amounts of this disinformation to Russia and China. Some of those stories can be traced right back to those states, but they reach the public through the guise of legitimate-looking websites, which distribute them all around the world. So yeah, blame those governments, blame those websites, but there is an underlying force that fuels all of that disinformation, that supports it, and that monetizes it, and we don't talk about it at all, largely because it's sort of invisible. 
It's built with a set of automated processes, algorithms. Decisions often get made through artificial intelligence. It can be difficult to figure out who a story about this would be about. But this thing that I'm describing here, it is what creates the financial incentive for disinformation and misinformation. And what I'm talking about, of course, are digital advertisements. It's time for us to take a close look at them. Our reporter, Cherie Suchrin, will explain. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Kendra Crichton, Alexandra McKenzie, David Faulkner, Paige Marcil, Bert James, Maria Flores Lopez, Sam Ellers, and Dave. My name is David, and I'm a Toronto-based writer, editor, and writing and communications prof. I'm also a longtime supporter of Canada Land. I first supported Canada Land because I believe that a healthy media landscape requires robust media criticism. I've continued to support Canada Land because it has grown into one of the country's most vital and diverse media outlets, supporting excellent journalism, and journalists, of course, through the site and its many podcasts. I also don't hate Jesse Brown, even if he is a little insufferable at times. The first time I noticed the connection between ads and disinformation was because of a Twitter fight featuring Antifa and dirty toilets. I was scrolling through Twitter one day, and I stumbled across a screenshot of an article from the post-millennial. The article claimed that a woman named Nandini Jemi was, quote, an Antifa-loving activist and that she wanted milder punishments for convicted sex offenders. And on the page right below the article was this banner ad. It was a prominent photo of a very dirty toilet, encouraging you to click to find out more about how to get your toilet sparkling. Nandini Jeremy herself was the one who tweeted the image. The post-millennials got the shittiest possible ads, literally, she wrote. Of course, I had to find out what this is all about. Yeah, that's an interesting way for you to find me, huh? <laughs> this article wasn't a one-off. The post-millennial has written extensively about Jammy. Starting in November 2021, a series of articles have said that Jammy is a deranged activist, that she attacked a Jewish journalist, and that her business partner was trying to buy inappropriate material for minors. I mean, they've called us everything under the sun at this point. Now, the post-millennial lists itself as a news and investigative journalism website. They have an editor-in-chief, a roster of writers a page about journalistic standards. But many critics say that the site encourages hate and spreads disinformation. They've been criticized for publishing false claims about the COVID-19 pandemic, negative portrayals of immigrants, and the LGBTQ community. So I wondered what Jamie could have done to incite their vitriol. Turns out that just two days before that first article, Jamie had been on a mission of her own. She had started alerting companies to the fact that their ads were on the post-millennials website. So around September or so, I started to tweet at companies, advertisers, and ad exchanges to let them know that they were advertising on the post-millennial. Companies like Equinox, an upscale gym. Life. Live like it's art. Or Bombas, which makes socks. Socks shouldn't have an annoying seam. Fixed. Socks shouldn't fall down. Fixed. 
Socks should provide support where you need it most. Fixed. And these companies, well, they didn't seem to know their ads were there in the first place. And once they found out, they pulled them. So I've been fighting disinformation for five years now by going straight to what I consider the source or what we consider the source of their funding, which is ad revenues. Several major advertising platforms had already started to delist the post-millennial, taking their ads off the website, saying that the website had violated their content policies as the reason why. As the post-millennial lost advertisers, Nandini Jamie began to believe that this was the way toward defunding the post-millennial. In fact, she thinks that this is the key to defunding online hate and disinformation altogether. Basically, the way that works is I tweet at the companies with screenshots of content on the post-millennial along with their display ad, which shows up right next to it. And when they see that, you know, usually their immediate response, their team comes back to us and says, you know, we had no intention of placing our ads on a website like this. We don't support hate or hate speech or bigotry. We will be blocking our ads moving forward. Nandini partnered with Claire Atkin, and together they co-founded a nonprofit consulting agency. My name is Claire Atkin, and I am a co-founder of Check My Ads, which helps brands figure out where their ads are being posted. We are in a disinformation crisis, and there are certain publishers on the internet who are making wild amounts of money thanks to the advertising industry as it stands currently. Right now, the advertising industry is a $400 billion industry, and the money in it is controlled by a very small handful of ad tech exchanges, ad tech companies, whatever you want to call them. They are choosing to send ads to certain places and choosing to not send ads to others. And every single one of these companies has some kind of standard that they adhere to for what they call their inventory, basically the publishers who they work with. And they say to advertisers, here, buy the publishers who are in our inventory because our publishers are the best publishers. And we will make sure to keep your brand safe by making sure that none of the publishers who we put your ads on will promote violence, will promote xenophobia, will promote transphobia. We will make sure to stay away from anything that is disinformation and hate speech. But they're not doing that. So that's the problem that we see today Disinformation and hate speech is incredibly profitable. Jami and Atkins say that their method of delisting ads can help dismantle the disinformation economy. And it looks like at least some companies are on board. But how much do ads really matter to a disinformation website's total revenue? Can limiting ads really change anything at all? As it turns out, Jami and Atkin already have an answer to that. In 2017, Jamie was part of an activist group called Sleeping Giants. They went after the monetization of the right-wing American website Breitbart. Breitbart was created in part by Steve Bannon, the chief strategist for former U.S. President Donald Trump. And in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election, the website, and Bannon himself, rose to prominence as outspoken Trump supporters. The site, which claimed to be a news website, was rife with mis- and disinformation, and peddled in hate toward minorities, fake news about the dangers of immigration, climate change denial, that sort of thing. What Sleeping Giants did 
was what Jeremy and Atkin are now doing with the post-millennial. They screenshot the ads they saw up and tweeted those images at the companies supplying the ads, letting them know what was happening. Companies like Audi, Ethan Allen, and Lyft all pulled out of Breitbart. And it worked. Breitbart lost a lot of money. In July 2018, Steve Bannon was filmed for a documentary called The Brink. At a dinner with some European businessmen, he was heard discussing the financial losses Breitbart felt after sleeping giants came after them. We were going to make like $8 million of free cash flow that year. After we won, um, this group called Sleeping Giants, a group of tech executives, they, they literally stripped out, they went to the 35 exchanges that sell the ads, 31 went away. So the ad revenues dropped like 90%. Sleeping Giants, they attacked us too. No, they, like Twitter. Yeah. See, they go like, you know you're doing advertising on this site? Yeah. Take it down. They screamed they, they yeah. And eventually Google um, banned us from um, the ad network. All the right-wing media, the top 10 companies, by the end of the year, except for Fox, will be donor-based. You'll have to have a donor come in and write a check. There's no economic model. Not only that, but researchers are now making connections between ad funding and Russian disinformation about Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. But maybe it's good for us to backtrack a bit here. And look at how we ended up in this mess where companies can't even know where their ads end up or what they're funding. To answer that, you have to go back and look at the history of the early internet. 
I got in touch with Augustin Fu in New York. He spent over 25 years working in the digital marketing industry and has seen the growth of third-party advertising happen in real time. So in the early days, the ads were placed on sites like Yahoo. And essentially, it was like a magazine, just a digital form of it. And back then, they would sell the ads, and then advertisers would buy it from them. So that's kind of called direct buying. And then, obviously, you remember the rise of the blogs. So the blogging platforms like Blogger, WordPress, and a few others. And that allowed more people to write content and put it online because they don't need to know HTML. So with that, we've seen a dramatic rise in the number of sites. And it got to a point where the big advertisers couldn't go to 10,000 small websites and say, can we buy ads from you, right? That just was not practical. So that gave rise to what we call ad exchanges or programmatic ad exchanges. And those are very similar to Wall Street, right? The stock exchange. And the stock exchange just brings together buyers and sellers of shares of stock. And the programmatic ad exchanges brings together buyers and sellers of ad impressions. Enter the ad exchanges, third-party platforms where companies and website publishers could buy and sell ads at a larger scale and even put up ad slots for bid. As Fu explained, it's these ad exchanges that form the building blocks of the programmatic ad industry. Like a lot of things on the internet, they've become consolidated, with Google being the largest server of ads. There are lots of smaller ad exchanges, but most ads you encounter online are served through Google. So how do bad actors end up able to take part in these exchanges? So as part of the exchange, uh, the advertiser is now kind of buying ads that go onto tens of thousands of sites, not you know one or two sites. Now they're buying from the exchange instead. And those ads can go to tens of thousands of websites. And as you can imagine, it became a lot easier for fraudsters and disinformation actors alike to spin up you know, a dozen sites, a hundred sites, a thousand sites, maybe 10,000 sites, and make them part of an ad exchange. And because they were mixed into tens of thousands of other sites, it was very hard to see. So just like the fraudsters, the disinformation actors have created websites, and now they have revenue stream from digital advertising, which they didn't have before. Because imagine if you were a disinformation site and you went to a big advertiser and say, will you buy ads on my site? Right? Obviously, the big advertisers will say, no, we won't do that. But if you're mixed into hundreds of thousands of other sites, the big advertiser simply doesn't know. So their money eventually unknowingly flows to both fraudulent websites as well as disinformation websites. So that's how this came about. If one exchange turns them away, the fraudster or the disinformation actor can go to another exchange. There are a bunch of different types of what Fu describes as fraudsters, but ultimately, that refers to any site that tries to get past an ad exchange's policies of what is allowed on their platform. Often, these fraudsters are fake news sites or sites that promote hate against minority groups. Or they could also be sites that post plagiarized information and articles for the sole purpose of catching ad revenue. Fu says... Bad actors are easily able to get past the ad exchange's screening and proliferate disinformation. And it gets even more complicated than that, because you can game a site to make it look more legitimate than it actually is. 
First, websites can list themselves as legitimate news websites when applying for an exchange. They can say that they have journalistic standards when in fact they have none. And then they can make it look like lots and lots of people are coming to this not-so-legitimate website. These days, it's very easy to do that because they can cross-post it to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, other social media. So they have a way to disseminate it and amplify it. Now, even then, if they just depend on the traffic that comes to their site, they might still have low traffic. So what do they do? They go and buy some traffic, right? Basically, it's trivial now to buy bot traffic, right? If you just um, Google the term buy traffic for my website, you'll see hundreds of vendors ready to sell you traffic. So the combination or the intersection between disinformation and ad fraud is now those disinformation websites can also juice their numbers, right? Inflate their traffic by using bots to hit the site. And so they can make a lot more ad revenue because the fraud detection companies and the exchanges, they're not really even looking. They're not looking that hard. So it's very easy for them to make more money by inflating or increasing their traffic artificially using bots. As it turns out, it's really easy to make a bogus website and make money off of it. According to a BuzzFeed News investigation, in 2019, there were a pair of fake news websites disguised to look like real local news, one called the Albany Daily News, and for Canadians, the City of Edmonton News. These sites featured copied news content from across the web including celebrity content unrelated to the cities they supposedly served. And the city of Edmonton News had somehow generated more page views than real news sites like those of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun. In 2020, CNBC reporter Megan Graham decided to test exactly how easy it would be to monetize a website. So she created a fake website and copied her own CNBC articles onto it to see how long it would take for her to be approved to run ads. She applied to almost three dozen ad tech partners. Google declined on the basis that her site had scraped material. But some approved her right away, and ultimately three tech companies approved her to monetize her website. And when she began running that ad program, ads for legitimate companies appeared. Kohl's, Wayfair, and Overstock cropped up. And if she continued to run it, she could have started collecting cash from those places. Coming back to Augustine Fu, he says that the fact that this is so easy is the fault of these ad exchanges failing to uphold their own standards. So yes, there are these policies and, you know, the companies will quote unquote say they've done their job. So some of these policies are, oh, you know, you can't do hate speech, you can't have nudity, you can't have all this and this and this, right? You're not supposed to commit fraud either. But basically it happens all day long. And those policies are not enforced strictly enough. And so the bad guys, you know, they'll just basically do it for as long as they can before they get caught. And once they get caught, they just spin up 10 more websites and continue. So, you know, this kind of escalating uh, arms race, uh, the good guys will always be at a disadvantage because the, the bad guys can innovate faster, they can move faster. Right, they don't play by the rules. So when Breitbart was blocked in 2016 because Sleeping Giants outed them, people started adding Breitbart.com to their block list. If Breitbart put in Breitbart.com, 
nobody would bid on it because that domain was already blocked. So they have an incentive to lie, and Breitbart will pretend to be MarthaStewart.com or TravelAndLeisure.com, right? That's called domain spoofing. Now, even that is being caught a little bit better because in those cases, if they lied about the domain, but the seller ID is still theirs.、Um, You know, if someone looked, they would find that mismatch and then say, "Oh, well, the money's still flowing back to Breitbart." So then they would actually shut down that seller ID. So then the next step is Breitbart partnering with somebody else、uh, in a dark pool. So now that is starting to occur a lot more because that's a way for them to pool their inventory into things that are kind of shady and you really can't see where the money's going. Braden Vickers is a software developer based in Singapore, and from his research that he's done into this topic, he's found that some of these misinformation sites are now linked to other more innocuous sites, which provide another possible source of revenue. The Postmillennial, for example, is connected to another site called Woe Canada. Woe Canada is populated by listicles about the best Canadian animals or the top tourist sites. It's all very light and neutral, very much unlike the type of content on the Post Millennial. You can see pretty clearly in the data that I look at with uh, well known. Uh, so there's、uh, a lot of overlap in the site and the ad accounts used by the Post Millennial and、uh, another site called Woe Canada, which yeah doesn't post the same disinformation and hate speech necessarily、uh, or that type of thing, but has a lot of ad funding from. Accounts that are supposedly owned by the Post Millennial, and so yeah, there's speculation that that is one is being used to fund the other. But major ad aggregator platforms are working to address these problems. I reached out to Google Canada, and in an email response, they said, "quote We have strict ads policies and publisher policies that govern the types of ads and advertisers we allow on our platform. Those policies prohibit content that makes unreliable claims." Such as content that could undermine trust in a democratic process, harmful health claims, and content that denies the existence of climate change. But to enforce those policies, they said that they used quote a mix of automated systems and human review. They said that they can disable ads on specific pages or remove ads from a site entirely. Google said that in 2020. They took action against more than 1.3 billion publisher pages, and have removed ads from several prominent right-wing websites, including Gateway Pundit, Bongino Reports, and My Militia. Google, as well as many ad exchanges, have started relying on AI technology to help them determine if a site is safe or not for their ads. This allowed the ad aggregators to promise companies that their brands would be protected. That their logos would stop getting pasted on fake news sites. Sounds good, right? Well, the problem is that it didn't really work as expected. Here's Claire Atkin and Nandini Jemi from the nonprofit Check My Ads again. There are two types of technologies that the brand safety industry leans on in order to keep your ads away from things that. Promote violence, things that promote hate, or even drugs, things that advertisers don't want to fund. The first and simplest technology is called keyword blocking. So it works by putting a list of keywords up and saying, anytime this keyword is in a URL, basically the name of an article, don't put the ad there. Block it. 
The second technology that they use is called semantic analysis, and I'll let Nandini explain that. They call it semantic analysis. They call it contextual intelligence. They have all kinds of of proprietary uh, terms for this. Essentially, what they claim they can do is scan a page as if you were a real person, as if uh, a real person was reading it, and be able to tell what the topic of the page is, what the tone of the page is, and what it makes you feel as a human being. And they have a term for that. It's called sentiment analysis. So they say that they're able to figure out whether this article that you're reading makes you feel positive, negative, or neutral, which is as dumb as it sounds, right? Because different people feel different way about articles. Like, who are they basing this off of? Who is this Wait, so this this technology can, like, look at a news website and just decide if it's, like, depressing or not? That's what they claim. That's exactly what they claim. And one of these companies, Integral Ad Science, they... For a hot second, about two years ago, in 2020, they released a demo of this product. And you bet Claire and I were on it. <laughs> and what we did, we quickly threw in some news articles about Black Lives Matter, like actual news coverage of Black Lives Matter. And we also threw in articles from white nationalist websites. One of them was American Renaissance. Uh, Another was Liberty Hangouts. And so what the demo spit out was all the articles about Black Lives Matter, like the news, critical news, local news coverage of Black Lives Matter was marked as a negative sentiment. And all the stuff that was literally put out by a white nationalist was either neutral or positive. So basically this technology isn't as smart as they want it to sound, I mean, or as smart as they promote it to be. And Nandini and I have found over the years that this brand safety industry is not helping keep ads away from hate speech and disinformation. It's actually just defunding the news. In April, 2020, The Guardian reported that UK newspapers could lose over 50 million pounds in revenues because of advertisers blocking words related to the coronavirus pandemic. That's right. These brand safety technologies were diverting ads away from news sites that covered the pandemic. A spokesperson for Newsworks, an organization representing the UK newspaper industry, told The Guardian that the lists were threatening our ability to fund quality journalism. And the impacts were seen in North America, too. In March 2020, Craig Silverman published an investigation for BuzzFeed that found that at least one major brand had been pulling their advertising from digital news sites, including Global News, by blocking words related to the pandemic. He reported that while readership soared, ad revenues were plummeting. In April 2020, Post Media, Canada's largest newspaper publisher, held a virtual town hall for its employees at which the company described how ad blocking was affecting them. Tape from that meeting was leaked to Candleland. This is Lucinda Chowden, who at the time was the company's senior VP of editorial and editor-in-chief of the Montreal Gazette. Disappointingly, at the same time as audiences are looking at our work more than ever before, we are unable to monetize that work. Even though we have more users, more page views than we have seen in the past, a lot of advertisers online don't want their content, their ads associated with content that deals with disease and death. So there's an algorithm that is 
shifting people away from anything that has uh, COVID in the URL. As a consequence, record numbers of users and page views have coincided with a significant drop in revenue. But the pandemic wasn't the only newsworthy topic being blocked. Vice News has reported on keyword blocking around terms related to the Black Lives Matter protests. Keyword blocking became especially obvious when, on March 7, 2020, a company which was advertising on the New York Times website ended up pulling their ads, leaving a large banner right at the top of the homepage completely blank. And speaking of the New York Times, a researcher named Christoph Franizek who runs a blog called Adalytics, has looked at how specific, well-known journalists are more likely to have content marked as unsafe. That list included two times journalists, Nicholas Kristof and Jen Ransom, who had 65% or more of their content marked unsafe by the brand safety technology used by some ad tech platforms. I really wanted to find out more about how the news industry was dealing with this type of blocking, how much it was impacting revenue, and if editors ever had to make a choice about what content to publish based on these metrics. I asked the major Canadian news outlets about it, but unfortunately, not a single one wanted to talk. But in the UK, the conversation around keyword blocking is not nearly as secretive. And a recent campaign led by Newsworks is pushing for the ad industry to stop blocking around words related to climate change, saying that it could prevent the funding of much-needed information on the topic. Atkins says there's just no way this brand safety technology can ever work. You can't automate your way to brand safety, and that's because it takes a human to understand when something is published in bad faith. And what we're talking about when we talk about disinformation is most of the time, the bad faith publication of content to do with sensitive social issues. It is usually content that scapegoats a minority group. And that's why when we're talking about this stuff, we say over and over again, this is not a conversation about politics. This is a conversation about disinformation versus journalistic standards. This conversation about brand safety, programmatic ads, and the defunding of news has been happening for the past couple of years within the ad industry. But now, there's an even more urgent problem. The monetization of disinformation about the war in Ukraine. Starting in March, the Global Disinformation Index began highlighting the ads that appeared right next to harmful and dangerous articles. Ads for Adobe Canva appeared on a fake news site discussing the conspiracy theory, believed to have started in Russia, that Ukraine has been conducting bioweapons research. Ads for the BBC can be found on a page about the denazifying of Ukraine, the reason Russia has cited for the invasion. And on a website called the Conservative Treehouse, there was an article about Russian President Vladimir Putin wanting to rebuild Ukraine with a big banner at the top for the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian aid organization. Google has responded to this and says it is working to address the problem of Ukraine disinformation being monetized. As of February 26th, the company has paused monetization of Russian Federation state-funded media. And then a month later, they paused monetization of content that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war in Ukraine. And so long as they're doing that, it's a step in the right direction. Right? They didn't. They just said they did. 
Just before this interview, I made sure to go to mail.ru, just to the homepage. It's mail.ru. And right at the top, I see an ad for Oak and Luna. And when I go to the information button, it says something in Russian and then Google, which means the ad is supplied by Google. We're seeing them on mail.ru. We're seeing them on TASS. This is Russian-owned media outlets who are accusing Ukrainians of being Nazis and justifying the invasion of Ukraine as a unification effort of Russia. And they are lying to the Russian people and lying to the world about what is happening. And American and Canadian companies are funding this. And they're funding it against their interests, against their knowledge. And they're doing it because Google has basically forced them to do that. Claire Atkin isn't the only one who noticed that Google's claims of pulling their ads from Russia don't pass the smell test. Danny Rogers, executive director of the Global Disinformation Index, told me that they've been trying to bring attention to this problem for years. Whether it's, you know, official stuff out of the Kremlin or semi-official stuff out of the Kremlin or you know, stuff around the world uh, that is highly influenced or aligned with Kremlin talking points, you know, has been monetized for a long time. You know, just sort of egregious examples of things like, you know, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs ads running on TOS.com, which if you think about the, the money flow is, you know, U.S. government money going into the Google machine, coming out of the Google machine and going into the Kremlin's bank accounts, right? And so what we're seeing now is just a huge explosion of content in that category. And he blames this problem squarely on Google and the major ad platforms. They have to do everything that they can, not only kind of from a sort of ideological perspective, like not you know participate in this war, but also to protect their own customers, even from a very sort of parochial consideration, like their own customers want this. And there's frankly no reason that they shouldn't provide it. When a company that's building quantum computers and autonomous cars and launching satellites, like says they're, they're trying their best and it's still not happening. It, 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 it doesn't strike me as genuine. I asked Google about this, mentioning specific sites that were flagged by Check My Ads and GDI. Lauren Skelly, spokesperson for Google, said in an email response that the company was closely monitoring the situation in Ukraine and Russia. She said that the specific sites I mentioned were part of a larger group that was under review, and they will be taking action if they don't meet Google's policies. But bringing this story full circle, Skelly also said that Google had previously taken action against the postmillennial for specific pages that were in violation of their policies. So how can we push against this never-ending tide of fake sites, bad actors, and disinformation? Well, Jamie and Atkin are taking it one side at a time. So the thing with contacting advertisers is that when you talk to advertisers, if I were to notify advertisers one at a time about their ads appearing on disinformation sites, I will be working through the end of time, and then my ghost will continue working (laughs) for several lifetimes. Chad Loader, a computer software developer who has been working with Jamie to better understand how programmatic ads work, has been quietly tracking the ad exchanges that have delisted the post-millennial from their platforms. And in an ongoing Twitter thread, he has noted over 20 platforms and ad exchanges from which the post-millennial has been delisted. 
and the post-millennial is well aware of what is happening. They've said so themselves in the stories they published about Jamie, saying she is attempting to de-platform sites that she disagrees with, calling her a cancel culture crusader. I have reached out to the post-millennial multiple times, seeking comment on their attacks on Jamie, as well as their claims that she was trying to defund them. Libby Emmons, editor-in-chief of the post-millennial, declined an interview, but said, quote, We stand by our reporting, and we will not be silenced by Nandini Jamie's crowdsourced intimidation against our journalists. Jamie has a different take. The status of the post-millennial is that their biggest source of ad revenue today is Google. Google is still monetizing and serving the post-millennial, even though it violates their publisher policy. One of the things that we've noticed about the post-millennial and the way that disinformation in general works is that these guys are always helping each other out. So one thing that I noticed after, I mean, there was, there was a few days where, <laughs> where the post-millennial had a lot of empty spots, a, a lot of empty ad slots on their website. And then I noticed that one of them was filled by a new widget called Hotwire. It's a widget of articles from another outlet called The Daily Wire. And so what I think happened is that the Daily Wire saw an opportunity to finance the post-millennial. That's one thing. And the other thing is to introduce their own content and rhetoric to a welcoming audience. That benefits both of them. That's a synergistic relationship. It allows the post-millennial to make some money, and it allows the Daily Wire to reach new audiences and new eyeballs. So I think what we're going to see is more of this, you know, one thing that these disinformation outlets and the people who work at them do really well is they go on each other's shows and podcasts and write for each other's websites and they're constantly cross promoting each other. So what I suspect is going to happen is that in some way, these outlets will continue to develop financial relationships with each other and keep each other afloat that way. I mean, if you could estimate, how much money do you think the post-millennial has lost so far because of you taking ads off of their website? We really don't know. Like, the best way to answer that question is to extrapolate. You know, Breitbart was a huge website. They were going to make $8 million in 2017. They lost 90% of it when they lost 31 of 34 of their ad exchanges. When the Gateway Pundit lost Google ads, they were going to make $1.1 million from Google ads, and they lost that. The ad tech world is non-transparent, so it's very hard to say. But we do see materially that the ads start to look worse, that they complain a lot more, they don't expand as fast or at all. And we know that our work has an impact because they are doing everything they can to slander us. So an outlet like the Post Millennial, as far as we know, has backing from some very wealthy donors. I don't think that we're going to be able to change that. I think they'll be okay, but they're not going to have a business model anymore. They're not going to be earning ad revenues and they won't have the legitimacy of national advertisers on their website. In a story that started with an ad about dirty toilets, I wondered what the post-millennials' ads look like these days. So I clicked on their latest story about how the Washington Post plans to, quote, dox libs of TikTok. There are two ads up. One for MyPillow, a company whose CEO had been one of the leading proponents of false claims that the last U.S. election was stolen. 
And then the other ad was a Google-generated ad encouraging users to subscribe to the Globe and Mail. That is your Canada Land show. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at CanadaLand.com. That is where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which will fill you in on everything CanadaLand publishes every week, in case you missed anything. And our newsletter will also change your mind about puns. They can be good. This episode was reported by Cherie Sutrin, with production help from Jonathan Goldsby and Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, if you like this show, the only way that it exists is because thousands of people just like you support us every week with a small subscription payment. And they get t-shirts and they get ad-free podcasts and all kinds of other great stuff. Please join them. Go to canadaland.com slash joiner. Just click the link in the show notes. It takes a second. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.